2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, I'll read that verse again. Uh, We'll be focusing on, uh, of course, the entire passage we read, but the, the main focus will be on this verse here. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. As far our text. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the world of business, many companies spend millions of dollars on advertising and marketing. If you want to sell your product, you need people to know about it. And one effective marketing tool is a good slogan. For example, if I say uh, the words, you can do it, we can help, you probably immediately think of the Home Depot. A slogan is a short statement that's meant to send a message to buyers. It tells people in just a few words what the company is all about, what they do, how they can serve you, how you can benefit from them. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, we've just celebrated Christmas. We take the time to reflect on the coming of Christ into the world And there's so much to look at, so much to explore. But can we ask, can we summarize what Christmas is all about in just a few short words to get the message across to people who might not know it? What's at the heart of it? What is the meaning of Christ coming into the world, God's Son coming into the world? Can we come up with a short, memorable statement to summarize it? Tell people what it means. I'd say our text this morning summarizes the meaning and significance of Christ's birth so well. And in just a few short words, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is a statement that tells us what Christmas is all about. It's at the heart of the gospel, and it's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. And that's why, as I preach you God's word this morning, I've summarized the sermon as follows. Christ Jesus came into this world to give us poor people true riches. We'll look at, first of all, Christ graciously gives us true riches. And second, we reflect his gracious giving to others. Now, the passage we read begins a new section in Paul's letter of 2 Corinthians. At this point in his letter, Paul speaks about the collection for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was substantially larger than most of the New Testament churches at this time. And yet, this church also fell into great need, most likely from a famine. Uh, The book of Acts speaks about that somewhat. And our text and many other texts in the New Testament, they, they speak about this collection for the needy church in Jerusalem. Well, Paul in our text 
encourages the Corinthian believers to give generously, and he does so in various ways. And the first thing he does is he speaks about the the Macedonian churches, which included uh, the churches at uh, Philippi and Thessalonica and, and, and ones like that. And these churches, they served as an, as an example of how the grace of God changes us to give generously. Paul wants the Corinthian churches to take note of what they have done and encourages them to act in the same manner. Those churches had given, or sorry, the Corinthian church had given their intentions to contribute, contribute to this gift, and now Paul wants them to carry it through to the end. He says in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Right? The, the Macedonian churches, they had proved their love by their generous giving. Their faith produced deeds. And so if the Corinthians mirror the earnestness of the Macedonian churches, they likewise will show, they will demonstrate that their love likewise is real. But then the Apostle Paul gives another example of generous giving that can spur the Corinthians on. It's not another church but it's our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, again, the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let me state again, this, this is what the coming of Christ into the world is all about. It's at the heart of what we celebrate at Christmas time. Let's unpack these words. The first phrase focuses on Christ himself. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Christ Jesus was rich. And he had true riches. Jesus Christ is true man. And he is also true God. As the Nicene Creed puts it so well, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. And this being the case, it's it's hard for us to, to fully comprehend the riches that Christ had, the riches that our text speaks about. Christ prayed to the Father in John 17, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And we cannot fully comprehend the magnitude of that glory. But when we, we can study what Scripture teaches us about the glory of God, and this can help us to see something of the riches of Christ that he had. Hebrews 12, for example, describes something of the heavenly Jerusalem. It says, gather there are innumerable angels in festive gathering. Think about that in your mind. God's heavenly city, thousands upon thousands of angels gather together, glorifying God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What a sight 
and what a sound that must be. Part of the riches the Son of God had, and yet he was willing to put aside that praise. Another example is Isaiah 6. The prophet Isaiah recounts a vision of God's heavenly throne room. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is the glory that the Son of God shares in. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, it implies that in this vision, the prophet Isaiah saw none other than the glory of the Son of God. John 12, verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things in Isaiah 6, because he saw Christ's glory and spoke of him. Right? Referring to the Son of God. He saw the glory of the Son of God in Isaiah 6. And we won't really know the riches Christ gave up until we reach glory ourselves. And even then, we probably won't fully comprehend it. But these riches... They far surpass anything we can see with our eyes here on earth. And yet our text says, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. What way did the Lord Jesus become poor? Well, we know that the Son of God took upon himself a true human nature. Hebrews 2 says, he became like his brothers in every respect, except without sin, of course. However, we also need to be careful here. There is, it's, this is not to say there's something uh, wrong or uh, poor about creation itself. Right? Creation is good. God's creation of humans was very good. And to be a human by itself is not a poverty. And yet the Son of God took upon our human nature in a broken world. With all of its pain, with all of its weakness, and the glory of his divine nature was hidden within the covering of his frail humanity. And yes, there are times when this glory shone through. John 2 tells us that at the wedding feast of Cana, Christ revealed his glory. That's when he changed the water into wine. He showed his divine power to create. Think also the Mount of Transfiguration. Christ's clothes became white as light. His face shone like the sun. His, his glory shone through for his disciples to see, some of them. And on the whole, people did not recognize God's Son or give him the glory that he deserved. All that praise that the the innumerable angels were giving him, not hardly anyone was giving him that praise on earth. It's part of his poverty. As John 1 states, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. 
And he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. His poverty began from day one. He was born in lowly Bethlehem. There was no room for his parents in the inn. There are indicators from Scripture that his parents were poor people. And then they were there in Bethlehem. They were forced to lay him in a feeding trough. He hardly had anything. And all through his life, Christ's human nature was perfected through suffering. He was familiar with suffering. How often did our Savior not experience sadness and sorrow and pain and weakness? How often was he not hounded and tempted by the devil? At any time, he had the power to give himself all of earth's comforts. Think of how he fed the 5,000. He could give himself anything he wanted, but he refused. Instead, he confessed the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Our text tells us That Christ became poor for our sakes. He came to bear in his body and in his soul the wrath of God against our sins. He suffered in this way throughout his life. But his poverty came to a climax on the cross. The soldiers who crucified him divided up his clothing between them, his very last possession taken away from him. All of his disciples abandoned him. And on the cross, all joy and all hope and all light, it fled away from him. He gave up every ounce of the riches of gladness. He willingly endured the extreme poverty of being forsaken by the Father. Christ Jesus became poor for our sakes. The cross of Jesus Christ. It's the ultimate act of giving. It will never be repeated in this world. It will never be matched by anyone in this world. And the poverty of the cross is completely opposite to the riches the Son of God deserved, what he was entitled to. But he did not hold on to his wealth. He let it go. You know, it's it's really stunning when you reflect on it. And think think about the riches you have. All the riches you have. All your possessions. All the ones you really love. All your money, all the comforts you have in your home, would you be willing to just give it all up in the same fashion? Would you be willing to just give it all away and and go live on the streets of Winnipeg for the rest of your life? But even if you did that, even if you did that, that would still not compare with the riches. Christ gave up and the poverty he took on for us. 
And yet he did it. He did it for your sake. Our text says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, we, by our rebellion, by our sin, were the poor ones. We were the ones that threw true riches away. We threw a relationship with God away, and and we gained only poverty. We were destitute in our souls, devoid of all riches of true holiness and righteousness. And we deserve the poverty of the cross, along with all of its shame, along with the wrath of God. And now so many people are walking around as poor souls without the lasting riches that come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Something of this poverty was highlighted the other day when I was walking through the grocery store. Uh, The Christmas music was playing and I'm listening, listening to the lyrics, and I hear, Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. And as I'm listening to this, I couldn't help but look at the people there and just wonder, you know, given the outlook and attitude of most people in our society because of our circumstances right now, how many people here actually believe what this man is singing have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. You know, does, does the treasure they have in their lives, does it really allow them to have this holly jolly Christmas? See, by and large, the people in our, in our city, in our country, they've moved away from God and Jesus Christ. And when people do that, it also means that when everything in life seems to go poof, as it is right now, then then your joy and your happiness is going to go poof also. We have something different. We have true riches in Christ. We have lasting riches in Christ that are not damaged by the circumstances, the hard circumstances of life. As 1 Peter 1 verse 4 and 5 puts it, God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's not to minimize the pain and loss and hurt some of us may feel in this time. It's not to downplay the seriousness of a lost job or a reduced income. Yet it highlights what a gift it is to have Christ. He's given us the riches of eternal life, and it will not be taken away from those who believe in Him. Brings us to our next point. So again, this statement here in our text, it's it's the main reason why we, we celebrate at Christmas time. Of course, our our text, it's part of a larger passage, as we've touched on somewhat briefly already. And again, the context for this statement about Christ giving up his riches is the collection for the Jerusalem church. 
And the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, brings up the example of Christ's generosity because he wants to spur the Corinthians on to this same kind of generosity. Right? Believers can reflect on the gracious giving of Christ as we give from what we have to, to help others. Now, this collection for the poor people in the Jerusalem church, it's mentioned multiple times in the, Old, in the New Testament. And you can read about it in places like Romans 16 and, and 1 Corinthians 16 and, and also in the book of Acts as well. And we might wonder why it receives so much attention. For example, in 2 Corinthians, it's a, it's a main focus of two whole chapters. Paul spends so much time on this matter. And while this collection is good, of course, it might, might not seem that extraordinary. But why does the Bible spend so much time on it? But the significance of this collection should not be lost on us. This collection for the church in Jerusalem was the first of its kind in all of world history. Think about it from an Old Testament perspective. On the pages of the Old Testament, pretty much all you see is animosity and fighting between Jews and Gentiles. You certainly don't see the Amalekites or the Babylonians saying to each other, hey, let's get together, let's make a collection for the poor people in Jerusalem. It just does not happen. But here we see the poor, the, sorry, the power of the gospel to dramatically change people's lives. Christ has made believers one in him. Didn't matter which nationality they were from. Didn't matter what social standing they had. Rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, it made no difference. These believers were one in Christ, so are we. And this truth, this truth of the gospel led to the practical outworking of their faith, their their faith produced works. The Christians in Jerusalem face great need, and so their Gentile, their Gentile brothers and sisters willingly supplied them with this generous gift. And this is one reason why Paul is so eager to have this collection ready for the church in Jerusalem. This is one reason why he mentions it multiple times in his letters. It was a powerful testimony to the life-changing nature of the gospel of Christ. As this generous gift from the Gentile Christians was given to the Jewish Christians, it would help solidify the unity of the church. And this life-changing power of the gospel is seen so vividly in the Macedonian churches. The Spirit says through Paul, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and the depths of their poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The severe test of affliction is most likely persecution. You can read about something of that in the book of Acts as well. So here they are going through an extreme trial, 
most likely persecution. Their poverty was deep, but their joy overflowed. And out of these things came a wealth of generosity from them. And this sort of thing only comes through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. That's why in verse 1, Paul describes their giving as the grace of God given to them. The grace of God had given these people generous hearts. It makes me think of a report I heard recently about some of the mission work the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is doing in Uganda. If you want to see poverty... Uganda is a place you can certainly see it. And every year, the people there, they go through what's called the hunger season. That's a time before the new crops are ready to be harvested. There's not much food. And the believers there rely on God to provide what they need for the day and tomorrow. They just do the same. And though they often have little, they are willing to share what they have. One young woman said this, Before I came to Christ, I did not care about other people's problems. But now, when someone asks me for food, if we have more than we can eat that day, I give them what we have to spare. Isn't that beautiful? It's the change that Christ brings. See, it wasn't Paul who is forcing these churches to give them money. There were no threats. He was not trying to make the poor people poorer. And this is one reason why he says in verses 3 and 4, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Macedonian church saw the riches they had in Christ, and so they lovingly gave by the grace of God. Paul encourages the Corinthians to this same grace as well. He says in verse 7, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Right? And this instruction applies to us just as much as it does to them uh, back in that time. As you excel in everything, see that you excel in this act of grace also, the the grace of giving. You know, at Christmas time, so many people think about getting. Getting more presents, getting more stuff. I encourage us all to, to change our focus. Focus more on giving. Focus on what Christ gave to us in coming to this world and then aim to have the same love. We can give to supply the needs of our brothers and sisters in this church. We can help out the needy people in our community and in our city. There's plenty of them. We can give what we have to supply the needs of Christians in other parts of the world. Again, this is not to try exact money from you. 
And you might imagine the Corinthian church, as they were reading this letter from Paul, might reply, well, that sounds nice, Paul, but we have our own financial needs here, too. Are you trying to burden us so that others can live at ease? And Paul says, no. I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened. He wants there to be fairness. And that no one in the church of God should go without their daily needs being met. To support his case, the apostle then quotes words from Exodus 16. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And this refers to the story of the manna in the wilderness. God gave his people just what they needed. Nobody starved. Nobody had too much. Now, of course, in the New Testament age, in our time, God is not raining down bread from heaven to provide our needs. But he's still concerned about the well-being of his children. Instead of using manna to supply the poor among his people, which he could do, he often uses the generosity of his own children in the church. You see, it's no big deal for God to rain down food from heaven. We might think that would be great. But what is God delighted? He delights far more in seeing his own children and give generously. That's what God delights in. We should keep in mind that the tables might be turned one day. Verse 14 says, Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply uh, your need. Paul is saying that the Jerusalem church was going through a time of need, but it might not stay that way. And the Corinthian church might not have their abundance forever also. Now put yourself in the shoes of needy Christians and consider how, what, or what would this feel like to have this poverty? And how would I feel if other Christians supplied my needs? What if they gave me a generous gift? I'm sure we would respond with thankfulness and praise to God for their generosity. That's one of the goals God has in mind with our giving also. It, it benefits not only the one who receives, but also the one who gives. And that's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 9. Paul is still talking about the gift to Jerusalem church, and he says, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. What is, what is God teaching us through these words? That giving is win-win. It benefits not only the one who receives, but also the one who gives. Those people who receive the gifts, they respond in thanks and praise to God they remember their brothers and sisters who gave generously, and they pray for them. And so the one who gives is also enriched. 
seeing these things, let us remember what Christ has given to us. Let us see the well-being we want to give to our neighbor. Let us also act generously. Amen. Let us now respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together hymn 23, stanzas 1, 2, 4, and 6. Thank you. 